is 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and 18. And it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I can remember for years and years and years, I would hear or read that 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and what it spoke to me in my formative years is, okay, no more smoking, no more drink, drinking, no more sex out of marriage, no more of the, the things that you know we itemize as the, the big 10, no more of that. I am a new creation. And that's the only thing I attributed to that verse 17. But when I got to the place of understanding what God wanted us to do with regard to how we are to interact with each other, 18 became very, very important. Not only was I a new creation to stop the Big Ten, but I was a new creation to get out of my little cubby hole of comfort to get out of that space that was really, really comfortable all the time and to really do the things that would enable me to be the bridge that God had called me to be. Because up until that time, I totally resented that idea of being the bridge person. I just really felt like, you know, God, being the only African-American in this setting and, you know, having to show up here at school every day, and it is really a bad trip, and I don't like it. But at the point that God began to show me that he planned this thing, this wasn't my idea, he planned it. From the very beginning, this was his plan for my life. So why am I going to have an attitude with the things that God has planned and given me evidence of for years and years and years? So just wanted to challenge you to think about those things of your past that set you up to be at Mosaic today. What set you up to be here? What set you up to acknowledge and then confirm the ministry of reconciliation. And sometimes it may take a while to go back where you started, the community you were in, who your third grade teacher was, different people in your life that spoke to, I'm going to be a bridge, and you didn't even know it. So just something to think about with regard to this whole idea of ministry of reconciliation, because what I found, this was not my idea. This was so far from my idea that I ran from it for years and years and years. But now that God has given me this ministry, it is the, this is what I wake up to do. And we praying that this be something that you are inspired around as well. All right. <laughs> I will bless the Lord at all times, and his praise shall continually be in my mouth. You can bless the Lord with me. That's all right.
And I am so thankful today, thank to my partner Noah for this opportunity to all of you. And I, I have to let you know um, and, and apologize in advance if I get a little bit excited and hyped up because my son is here today. My son is here to hear daddy speak. Uh, and, and, and so that's exciting for me. And so uh, Joel is out there like, well, if that excites you, then what was your excuse the other few days? And that's all right. You don't have to come for me like that, Joel. I got you. I got you. We're going we gonna to get through this thing together. I'm thankful for also my partner in the track world uh, and a, 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 a stronghold in this community, in this city, in the Grand Rapids educational uh, uh, public schools system, Ms. Yamaka Bracey, uh, principal of campus. We are campus. Yes, does amazing things with the Grand Rapids Fire. That's my shameless plug. You got children that like to run and want to run a little faster, jump a little farther, have them come and see us. And so we are, of course, as is customary in this place, and you've already known, but some of you are extended family who, by the way, we thank you for being here and we welcome you in this place. We want to make sure that this is not a, this is not a, you didn't come to see Adriel. No, that's, I got sense enough to know that. We came to be in community and hear from the Lord. And so first we are going to be in community. I do have two questions for you. If Alan can hook me up with these questions. Alan and Mario, they do the technology. I don't know. I'm going to try. You can see I'm going to try to do this technology thing. We're going to see how it works out. But here's our discussion questions. One, what does dignity feel and look like in your life? I want you to think about that. What is dignity? If you can think about the word dignity, what does it feel and look like in your life? And the second question, what are ways in which someone can try to take away or can be successful with taking away your dignity? And so let's go to the word, and uh, we are going to John, the ninth chapter. The Gospel of John, the ninth chapter, the first seven verses. So, again, y'all in this new millennial generation, you have your phones, you're just going to call that up. And I actually have it on my screen right now, so I'm doing, I got my paper book. Now, I got the paper, but I, I have it on here in the, in the screen. We're going to give that a try today. So, John 9, the first seven verses of John 9. It's also up on the screen for you. We'll get into that after a really quick, uh, brief prayer of understanding, truth-telling, soul-saving, life-giving spirit. We present ourselves to you now to be instructed and guided. Breathe your truth into us. Breathe your truth of deep Friday loss, your truth of awesome Sunday joy. Breathe your truth and story of death and life, that our story may be submitted to your will for life. We pray in the name of Jesus, crucified and risen again to new life. Amen. John, the ninth chapter, and the first seven verses say, As he, Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. 
While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Shalom. The word means sent in Hebrew. And so the man went and washed and came home seeing. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. This is, we're going to talk about how Jesus brings us dignity. And relating to our questions, we talked about what dignity looks and feels like in your life and how people can try to take it away. And so a lot of you know this about me, but some of our extended family don't. Back in the day, I was somewhat of an okay long jumper. I was, I was okay. I was okay. Uh, this is from my junior year in high school. And here I am, head is all big, haven't grown into it yet. And I have really bad depth perception, so, you know, these are going to fall off. So I had rec specs. I had on these goggles. So you can imagine that this big-headed, skinny, 130-pound little boy hadn't been in the weight room yet. And him standing on the runway, getting ready to go, and I can hear the chattering around me. Oh, look at Urkel. Urkel can't jump. Uh, look at him. He's, what does he think he's going to do? And, and this was by design because there had been rumors. Folk had heard, even back then without the Internet, they knew that there was a boy from Portage Northern High School who had to jump far. They just didn't know who it was. But when you looked at me, I certainly didn't look the part. So they just kept on talking because if by chance it was this little big-headed boy, this little big-headed Urkel, we're going to step him off of his game. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to remove my dignity by taking me off of my game. So I had to shut him up real quick. 23 feet 11 inches later, I had to shut him up real quick. And say, you're not going to take away my dignity because I know who I am and what I'm capable of. You cut to me several years later, I've now started coaching, and I'm coaching a young man who wins the state title, and he breaks even the record that I broke. That's my, that used to be the school record. I broke it, and it was 2311 after I broke it, and now my young man had broken it, and he says, Coach, you still got it because I was demonstrating to him how to do he just followed my ways, my lead. And he said, you still got it. You should still get out there and compete. So here I am, 30 years old. So, okay, I'm going to go back into the Masters. And so I went into the Masters, and I got my first national title in long jump. <laughs> and, and, and then two years later, I did it again. And I got another national title in long jump. And so I'm 32 years old, starting to slow down a little bit, at least I should be. And I got my dignity back because all that stuff, you know, I was supposed to be to go to, I was on the short list to do the Olympic trials while I was at the Naval Academy. And then I messed up my knee and had to have knee surgery. I had one conference. I was qualified for regionals. I was going to be an All-American, but the knee thing happened. And I started to feel like I'd lost my dignity. So I got back into it. And then I started coaching and I had really good success with that. And then after two national titles, five years later, I tore my ACL. And you're sitting out there and you're thinking, well, you should have left well enough alone. 
You should have realized you were too old to be doing that. You should have sat down somewhere. That's what my family told me that I should have done. But what if I told you that I didn't tear my ACL by long jump? I didn't tear my ACL doing anything related to field and track, but of all things, I tore my ACL during a staff versus student dodgeball game in the high school. One of my former colleagues is here. And so you're sitting there and say, oh, well, sure enough, you were in the Navy, so you were doing some kind of a, of, of a tactic move, tactical move or something, or you were jumping to dodge the ball. Nope. All I did was wind up to throw the ball. And when I stepped, my leg just said, nope. And so here I am, a two-time national champion, and I've just coached regional champion in long jump, and he went on to be all-state in long jump, so I'm making a name for myself all over again. And this entire gymnasium of high schoolers and my colleagues see me fall. And my dignity is taken away because at that very moment, the pics and the videos go viral on the Instas and on the Snaps and on the Facebook. And at the moment of my suffering, you understand, I want you to notice that in my stories, folk sought to take my dignity away the first time in order to take me off my game. But the second time, I was in a time of suffering. It seems as though the loss of dignity is most often associated with suffering. Several memes have been created with a crying Will Smith who was negged out in that picture because he egged out in that picture because he had just found entanglement with their children's friend. These memes are savage. They absolutely destroy his reputation and seek to take away his dignity. We're talking about a platinum Grammy award-winning artist, an Oscar award-winning artist, and he's now a punchline and a social media punching bag. There's another popular meme. It includes a crying Michael Jordan, the quintessential basketball player, the GOAT, the greatest of all time, his airness. Boys and girls, men and women alike, try to covet his shoes. They want his likeness and his signature on their shoes. And yet here he is being laughed at and taken as a joke because he had the audacity to show some humanness and cry when he was reliving the, uh, the idea that an abusive coach named Bobby Knight lit into him and made him feel like less of a man, let alone less of a ball player. So there he was getting sentimental about a time when he experienced suffering, and for that, he deserves ridicule. How sad a state of affairs. We all have moments where we're around folk that are suffering, and we just might be so used to the way in which we treat them that we become numb and immune to it. We tend to write them off, blame them, shun them, take away every remaining drop of dignity that they might have left. We'll indignify somebody in a heartbeat behind how they look and what they do, where they from, and who they with. But I came to tell you about a man named Jesus. Jesus sees us first and foremost as human beings and not human doings. Uh, the grammar teacher in me won't let that word pass without some commentary. You see, being is a present progressive participle. See, he said you are not just to 
be here. But when the Lord made you, he said, I want you to progress. That is why I'm glad professionals have stopped using the word retardation because it implies that we're holding somebody back. But over 1,500 times in the Bible, God gives us the command to go. And he wouldn't tell you to go if he wanted you to stay back. So he calls us human beings, folk who progress. Now we have better labels. We say special education with on the spectrum. These children, these people are progressing in their own special way. My nephew may not have all the fine motor skills in the world, but he's special. He can hear any song and tell you who sang it, when they sang it, when it came out, the record label. He can tell you all of that because he's I have another nephew. He's said to be on the spectrum. That means he's full of beauty both inside and out. He might not look you in the eye when he's speaking with you, but he will make you laugh. He will make you cry. He'll tell you everything you ever wanted to know about Michigan State or about the Detroit Lions. He's special. We all know somebody who's special and probably has had their dignity attacked at some point along the way. But you would praise God. For he says, I came today not just just so that you would be here, but so that you would progress, that you would have fullness of life. I came that you would have life more abundantly. Praise God that he speaks for the little people. I'm talking about the ones who have no spokesperson, the ones who have no insurance, the ones who only matter in sound bites and false campaign promises. The ones who have no posse, have no crew, have no team. Folk that have been degraded so badly that they have to look up just in order to get to sea level. And now if you know that that's you, you ain't got to say nothing because this message is coming from the Lord directly to you. And I came to tell you to forget about what you heard. Forget what everybody that did you dirty and, and folk that don't pay you attention. And hear me when I tell you, stand up, puff your chest out, and rejoice because in Jesus, who is the Christ, you have dignity. In the text today, we see a man whose dignity is attacked. And what's worse, look of all people who are the perpetrators. John records for us that the first people to talk out the side of their heads and indignify this man are the disciples, the inner circle of Jesus, the ones who ought to know better. And remember, John is written to help the first century church understand their role in this kingdom production. And so the disciples represent us, the church. It's the disciples who want to know who sinned to make this man blind. For the disciples, the blind man on the road is a foregone theological, moral, and philosophical conclusion. The blind man is a freak of nature. He's counter to the goodness of the Lord. So naturally, his condition must be because somebody somewhere done worked on the Lord's nerve. From the way the question is posed, the disciples cannot fathom anything other than the man himself or his parents have caused it. And they could not have chosen a better target either because the man was born blind. He wasn't made blind. He wasn't almost blind. He ain't half blind. He's not just considered legally blind, but he was born blind. And that's case in point right there. But who is the black sheep? Is it the parent? Is it the child? Is it nature or is it nurture? In book seven of Plato's The Republic, 
there is a composition called the allegory of the cave. And Plato imagines a group of people who have lived chained in a cave all of their lives, facing a blank wall. The people watch shadows projected on the wall by things that pass in front of a fire behind them. And they begin to ascribe forms to these shadows. And according to Plato, the shadows are as close as the prisoners get to seeing reality. He then explains that the philosopher is like a prisoner who is freed from the cave and comes to understand that the shadows on the wall do not, in fact, constitute reality, as he can perceive the true form of reality rather than the mere shadows seen by the prisoners. From that perspective, the man from our text's condition of blindness has been provoked by the process of socialization in his society that has been established and maintained by the ruling elite who construct reality according to their ideological values. Uh, let me bring it home for you. The ruling elite are the ones who said it's undignified to have dreads or cornrows because they make you look like a convict. The ruling elite said if you don't speak perfect English, then you are ignorant and not worth hiring. The ruling elite said if you wear a hoodie and have a bag of Skittles in your pocket, you must be a violent thug, so you have to be taken out before you can shoot somebody. The ruling elite said if you're white, you're right. If you're brown, I guess you can stick around, but if you're black, you better get back. It's the ruling elite. And do you understand that there's also a ruling elite in the church? At a former church, I had a fellow preacher say to me one time, after he had seen me shouting and dancing and clapping, he said, Reverend, all of that movement is undignified of such a man of the cloth. I looked at him, and I smiled. And I said, well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that your Bible seems to have some stains, some damage. He, he looked at me, and he said, what do you mean? I, I said, well, your Bible sustained some damage. It, it must not still contain Psalm 150 because Psalm 150 said, praise you the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to the abundance of his greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dancing. Praise him with strings instruments and flute praise him with resounding cymbals praise him with loud cymbals let everything that have breath praise the Lord praise ye the Lord and if you think that there's something undignified about shouting for joy in his presence and lifting your hands in the sanctuary and blessing God and dancing like David danced then I'm sorry to tell you that your Bible has sustained some damage and you need to get a new one and I apologize to you if my volume and my movement offends you. And I'm also sorry to inform you that I didn't come here for you anyway. Your approval is neither desired nor required, but because God is my dignifier. And if you knew what I've survived, if you knew what I made it through, forget about me and take the time to look back in your own life and realize when I think about the goodness of Jesus and what he's done for me, my soul cries out. Huh. Back to our blind man. I, I, I'm not, 
I'm not here to yell at you. I'm not here to try to get you. To, I ain't got to tell nobody to stand up. My job as a prophet of God is to help you understand that you need to look back. That's what prophets do. The prophets tell the people, think back of what God has done for you. Think about the time when there was no food on the table and it just showed up and you had a full belly. Think about the time when you were restless and you couldn't get any sleep late at night, but you called on the name of Jesus and you hit the bed and the pillow quicker than you would if you had some NyQuil. Think about the time and when, if you can possibly hold your pee, I need to know if we can just take some time to check our location and pause for station identification. You are listening to WGN. L-A-D. That's right, we are here because the psalmist said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the, I'm checking around, are we in the house of the Lord today? Is anybody glad? I, there's about five of you that are glad who can say, I'm glad when they said unto me, let us go. That's, that's, that's not dignified. I got to get back to my text. Back to the blind man. It's the ruling elite who seems to be the dignifying counsel. And since the very beginning of the man's life, the dignifying counsel has been teaching him that the reality of the society into which he was born constitutes the truth. In other words, they say that the truth is his uncleanliness results from an earlier known violation of the divinely sanctioned purity code that is set forth in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. You can read it when you get home. Are you not aware that dignity is not going to come from the world and its critics? It is a cruel world and their minds are already made up. There is indeed spiritual wickedness in high places and it keeps minds from functioning in the right spirit. That is why folk purport to be able to dignify you based on your race or your background or your wealth or lack thereof or your education or lack thereof, your rap sheet. But thank God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for being our dignifying counsel. Look at Jesus' reply to the disciples' question. He gives dignity not only to the blind man, but to all of us who have suffered mental anguish from a debilitating condition. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the work of God might be illustrated in his life. He emphatically, dogmatically, categorically rejects the preposterous answer given by his disciples. And the first word that he utters means neither, none of the above, not even, ni siquiera, if you will. This is the only time in the red letters where Jesus ever answers a question, begins a sermon, or initiates a conversation with an exclusive no. And then he repeats the negation to really make sure that they got it. Not even, not at all, this man's sin. Not even, not at all, his parents' sin. Not even, not at all, was the individual, collective, or outstanding, living, or unknown sin. It wasn't what the parents did to anybody, nor what the blind man brought upon himself, nor what they failed to give to God. Hear Jesus tell you today, it is not even, not at all, your fault because you grew up in that neighborhood. It is not even, not 
it all your fault because of your last name or the lack thereof because the one who was supposed to give it to you ran off on you. It is not even, not at all your fault that your father is in prison. Not at even, not at all your fault that you've never met your father. Papa indeed was a rolling stone and wherever he laid his hat was his home and when he died, all he left us was alone. But your condition is not even, not at all your fault. Now then, for every action, Newton tells us, there is an equal and opposite reaction. So if you cut yourself, you are going to bleed. If you smoke, your lungs will slowly stop working, right? If you drink too much, you will have a hangover. If you sleep around, you will endanger your health and other people's health and possibly your reputation. But you are not cursed. You are not destined for failure. The world wants to consign you to the realm of the unclean, the unsat, the unusable, and the undignified. But if I were you, I'd praise him right now because the word says, not even, not at all. The blind man has no burden to prove his innocence. No need to apologize for his condition or to feel guilty about himself or to feel ashamed before God and others. Jesus advises him to do the only thing he can. He'll allow God to work in your life. Uh, the form of the passive verb that he uses translates directly as be revealed be displayed or illustrated, meaning the man can be on the receiving end of God's work in a wonderful relationship. Check it out. Jesus doesn't waste any breath or any brain cells trying to ascertain the cause of the suffering, but instead says, choose your course while you in the suffering. Now, our finite minds cannot explain the reasons for our suffering, but our attitudes can determine the outcome within the suffering. It's about your attitude. Mad, why you're sad, fix your face. Jesus does not come just to take care of the mental health of the blind man, but he cares for him as a whole person. The Greek word that's translated Aiden in this verse 1 it translates as saw or perceived tells us Jesus already knows of this man's presence, his condition, and his need before the disciples even pose a question to him. He's aware because he's omniscient, meaning he knows everything, but that's not all. He's, the fact that he knows of the man's presence and situation is far beyond merely a cognitive recognition of the problem because Jesus dignifies us. We are not numbers or statistics. We are human beings. We are people. What's more, we are the imago Dei. That's Latin for the image of God. I thank Jesus for demonstrating to the disciples and thus to us as the church that the blind man is a person to love and not a topic to discuss. Oh, how I wish the church would grab a hold of that horse and go for a ride. I would that so-called evangelical conservatives would hitch their buggy to that horse as well because most of us are too busy gossiping about folk to help them out. We're too busy making memes that poke, poke fun at their downfall rather than praying with and for them. We're too busy sneak dissing and snapping candid photos and put on our stories to lend a helping hand. And then the rest of us are on the other side of it, the other extreme side, seeking out charity cases so that we can get a pat on the back or a byline in M Live or get invited to Ellen's show. And maybe it's a nice photo out for you. It might look good for your brand and your bottom line, but shame on you for pimping God's image. 
It is the work of God, not Morgan, that is to be revealed. Not through exploitation, but by rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. Let me help you understand that this is what the Lord was stressing in Exodus 20 and 13 when he said those two very small and simple words which we read as, do not kill. He was saying, value the sanctity and the dignity of human lives. Keep that in mind. A high value is placed by him on human beings. And this is how much. In the other Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and also here in John again, Jesus had used his spit to heal a deaf man and another blind man simply by touching their ears and their eyes. But he does something even more remarkable here. He heals on the Sabbath. That is the mandatory Jewish day of rest. The closest thing to us, and you think back a couple of years when we were all locked down and we were literally not able to leave the house, weren't able to do any work. Doctors weren't able to do any work. We weren't able to go to restaurants. That's like the Jewish day of rest. Nobody does anything but stay in the house. But look carefully at what Jesus does. And the wording here is very intentional. John uses a Greek word that says he makes contact with and he smears on the mud spit mixture. Now, it would have been one thing had he done a hit and run so as to not be seen violating the law with this also unlawfully unclean person. But no, Jesus takes his precious time. And nowhere else, I told you, is this word found in the Bible. We are here to see that Jesus rubs, massages, and touches the man's eyes lightly, kindly, and compassionately. He's in no hurry to heal and flee because the blind man is not a person to avoid, and the laws of the land are not supposed to take precedence over the sanctity and dignity of life. The risks of meeting, offending, and angering religious leaders do not stop him from doing what he was sent to do. Uh, as, my, as my students would say, Jesus understands the assignment. In Luke 4 and 18, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to announce release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. And here in John, he also understands the assignment. For he says in verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. When night comes, no man is able to work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So my mission, my gospel right now has to provide light because once I die, y'all ain't going to do it right. Y'all going to get scared of the religious and government leaders. Y'all going to get scared of the ruling elite. Y'all going to be afraid of losing your high standing in high society. But while I'm here, later for all that, I came to work. You want to debate about suffering, but I'm actually here to do some healing. You see, when you've got kingdom values, you don't care what folk think about you when somebody's dignity is hanging in the balance. For espousing kingdom values is going to make some folk talk about you. Espousing kingdom values is going to make some folk hate you. Espousing kingdom values is going to make some folk conspire against you. Espousing kingdom values is going to make some folk fire you. Espousing kingdom values is going to make some folk kick you out of their little sedity clubs. Raise up their nose at you. But you got to learn how to say, I ain't trying to earn your dignity vote anyway. Today, Christ gives me dignity. 
He takes his time. He doesn't heal in passing or from afar, but he takes his time. He applies the mixture and he stays with them. Uh, I'm so glad that he stays with us. Uh, he stayed with me when I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do. Uh, he stayed with me when I was down and out. He stayed with me when everybody else had left me. Uh, he stayed with me when all my friends had abandoned me. He stayed with me when family members unfriended me. He stayed with me when nobody else wanted to talk to me. He stayed with me when the world said I was no good. He saw the best in me when everyone else around me could only see the worst in me. And he stayed with me. Did he stay with you? Will you help me out? Why don't you tell somebody he stayed with me? I'm so glad that he stayed with me. Throughout all of my problems, he stayed with me. Throughout all of my tribulations, he stayed with me. Throughout all of my depression and heartache, he stayed with me. He stayed with me. And don't you know that our word for Christ is from the Greek word Christos, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means smeared or anointed. You see, when you have Jesus get inside of you, you've got dignity, and that's why just like he stays with you, you also need to stay with him. <laughs>